chapter 11 of the Gospel of Luke, Jesus' disciples come to him with a request. Lord, they say, teach us to pray. And this request may sound rather odd to us today, since we rarely ask other people to teach us how to pray, but it wouldn't have been a strange thing for Jewish disciples to ask, because Jesus was their rabbi, and disciples were expected to imitate their rabbis as much as possible. Of course, that meant listening to and following what your rabbi said, but it also meant watching him and trying to do what he does. Disciples were supposed to behave like their rabbi. Many of them would even try to imitate their rabbi in the way that they ate. And in fact, there's one story from Jesus' day that tells about a disciple who went so far as to try to hide in his rabbi's bedroom so that he could learn from the rabbi the proper way to be intimate with his own wife in the future. Now, obviously, this was taking things a bit too far, but you get the idea. Disciples didn't just listen to their rabbi. They watched him, and they tried to live as he lived. And if there's anything that Jesus' disciples had learned by watching how he lived, surely it was just how often and how earnestly he prayed. In fact, before they pose this question to him in Luke chapter 11, Luke has already mentioned Jesus' habit of praying seven different times already in the gospel. So the disciples, they, they'd seen Jesus pray a lot. They knew just how central prayer was to everything he did. And so it was natural that they asked him, Lord, teach us to pray. In response to that request, Jesus taught them a short prayer, which is recorded in both the Gospel of Luke and also in the Gospel of Matthew. It's often now referred to as the Lord's Prayer, or sometimes even more simply as the Our Father. And from the very beginning of Christian history, Christians have been repeating this short prayer in the morning, in the evening, when they gather together, when they're separated. In fact, early Christians said this prayer at least twice a day, sometimes as often as seven times a day. And when anyone new joined or was converted to the faith and joined the church, this was the prayer that they were taught to help them understand how to pray. For 2,000 years now, then this short little prayer has been repeated and taught and meditated on and cherished by Christians around the world. In the 16th century, the Protestant reformer, Martin Luther, described what he thought was the common consensus among Christians when he said, this is certainly the very best prayer that ever came to earth or that anyone would ever have thought up because God the Father composed it through His Son and placed it in His mouth, there is for us no doubt that it pleases Him immensely. The great value of this prayer for Luther then lay in the fact that it was composed by God Himself. And so we, when we pray it, we know, we know that He approves, that He hears it. 
But that's not the only reason that Christians have treasured this prayer. Several centuries before Luther, another great theologian by the name of Thomas Aquinas pointed out that not only does this prayer teach us what to ask for, it also teaches us what we should want in the first place. As Aquinas puts it, in the Lord's Prayer, one not only asks for those things that ought to be desired, but also does so in the order in which they ought to be desired. Thus, the Lord's Prayer is not only a rule for our petitions, but also a guide for all our sentiments. Going back even further than Thomas Aquinas, we can find numerous commentaries that were written on the Lord's Prayer, lectures that were given to churches by church fathers like Tertullian and Cyprian, Gregory of Nyssa and John Chrysostom, St. Augustine and John Cashin. Like I said, Christians have always treasured studying and saying this prayer because in it, they have found a model, not just of how to ask things of God, but of how to conduct the whole of their lives in relation to God. Jesus' disciples may never have known the inestimable value of the answer that he would give them to their question that day, but Christians across the centuries certainly have seen it. And over the next seven sessions, we're going to join with them, with all these Christians across the centuries, as we study, once again, what Jesus had to say when he was asked, Lord, teach us to pray. In this first session, I'd like to focus our attention on how Jesus begins the prayer, Our Father who art in heaven. Well, what do we learn from this beginning? Well, it seems that the first thing Jesus wants us to do when we pray is, is to focus our attention. That may sound like a small thing, but it's really not. Because if we're honest, most of us spend the majority of our time with a rather divided and distracted attention. Our minds are occupied with all of the tasks we need to get done the errands that we need to run, the people we're supposed to spend time with, the conversations we need to have. We're all very busy, and, and when you're busy, you're distracted. And not only that, we're constantly being bombarded with messages and with news and with advertisements, all of them vying for our attention. In fact, there's a research firm that estimates that the average person is exposed to somewhere between 6,000 and 10,000 advertisements every single day. And that's why Jesus wants us to pray, because prayer focuses our attention. When we pray, we begin by, by turning our attention away from all these ads and, and the news and from all of our own tasks and responsibilities, the things that give us anxiety, the things that we're distracted by, and we focus our attention on God. And who is this God on whom we focus? Or maybe I should ask, who is he to us? And who are we to him? Well, according to Jesus, he is our father. And the word father 
is not a word that's used very often in the Old Testament to speak about God. In fact, although there are more than half a million words in the Old Testament, only around 15 times do we find God depicted in any way as a father. But it does happen occasionally, and when it does, the purpose is almost always to convey God's special relationship with his chosen people. God is to Israel and to King David like a father because he has chosen to love them and commit himself to them. But then when you get to the New Testament, all of this hesitancy about talking of God as father, it just seems to vanish. Now, the apostle Paul refers to God as father all the time in his letters. And Jesus himself is constantly speaking of God as Father. But why? How exactly is God a Father? Well, in Matthew, in his Sermon on the Mount, right after Jesus teaches his disciples the Lord's Prayer, he uses the word Father to talk specifically about the love and care that God shows towards his people. Do not be anxious, Jesus says, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows you need them all. Notice how Jesus again here refers to God not just as a father, but as a heavenly father, a father who art in heaven. But why does he do that? Why, why clarify that God is a father in heaven? Well, there are several reasons, but one of the biggest reasons is because Jesus wants to emphasize that while God may be like fathers as we know them, he's also in a category entirely his own. Earthly human fathers have imperfections. They love their children, but imperfectly. Sometimes they hurt their children unintentionally. Sometimes fathers just don't know what to do or they just can't do it. But God isn't like that. God's love as a father doesn't waver. His understanding of his children is not faulty. He doesn't accidentally or intentionally hurt or abuse them. He's not limited and what he can do and how he can provide. God is like a father, but much, much better, Jesus is saying. In fact, in the next chapter of Matthew, right after this lesson about God being like a father in the Sermon on the Mount, in chapter 7, Jesus expands on this same point a little further when he compares God to other fathers. And all fathers, he says, at least the good ones, all of them love their kids and they want to give them good things. And God is like that, but, but God is more kind, more generous, more loving toward his children than any human father could ever be because, again, he is a heavenly father. I, I could give more examples of the same thing, but, but you get the point. When we begin to pray, Jesus is saying, we need to turn our attention away from ourselves, away from all the cares and concerns and distractions of our lives. We need to focus our attention on God. 
In the same way that a young child who's in danger or who needs something would turn her attention to a kind and loving and trustworthy father. And of course, that's not always easy to do. Sometimes we just don't feel worthy to approach God as a loving father. Because if we're honest, we know that we haven't been very good children. We're kind of like that prodigal son that Jesus told the story about in the Gospel of Luke, the one who abused his father's love and, and abandoned him to pursue his own interests. That's kind of how we are. But that doesn't change our ability to turn to God and know that he will be a father to us. Because, and this is very important, because the reason that we are able to call God Father, it really has nothing to do with how obedient or well-behaved we are. It has nothing to do with the strength of our religious devotion or with the frequency or earnestness of our prayers or the holiness of our lives. That's not why we get to call God Father. No, the only reason that we can address God as Father is because, as the Apostle Paul says in Galatians chapter 4, because by faith we have been joined to Jesus himself. We have been given his own spirit. So when we pray, we're not praying alone. We're actually praying with and in and through Jesus. We're piggybacking on his prayer. That's why we get to call God Father. And that's how we know that he loves us and hears us because God is the father of Jesus because he loves Jesus and he hears him and Jesus has invited us to share in his relationship to his father that's what we're doing when we pray we we're actually joining with Jesus we're turning our attention to the one who loves us and cares for us as no human father ever could to quote Rowan Williams, the former Archbishop of Canterbury, it sounds appallingly ambitious, even presumptuous, but that is actually what the New Testament suggests we do. Jesus speaks to God for us, but we speak to God in him. That, in a nutshell, is prayer, letting Jesus pray in you. Okay. So that's what it means to call God Father. But why this word our? Why our Father? Have you ever wondered that? When Jesus talks about God, he, he often refers to him as the Father or as my Father, but not as our Father. Take what he says in John 14, for instance. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. That's very characteristic of how Jesus talks. So why, when he teaches his disciples to pray, why doesn't he teach them to say, my Father who art in heaven, or just Father in heaven? Why our Father? Well, the reason is because when Jesus prays, he doesn't just pray for himself. We know that. We, we know it because we have examples of his prayer, like John 17, that are focused not just on himself, but on his followers. We, we know it because of verses like 
Hebrews 7, verse 25, and 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, which tell us that even now the resurrected Jesus lives to intercede, to pray for his followers before the presence of the Father. When Jesus prays, he doesn't just focus on himself. When he prays, he focuses on the needs of others. And that's exactly what he's teaching us to do by using the word our. I said earlier that when we pray, we're not praying by ourselves, but are joining with the prayer of Jesus. That's true. But it's also true that when we pray, we're not just praying for ourselves. When we pray, we pray with Jesus, but also when we pray, we pray with and for all other Christians. As the third century bishop, Cyprian of Carthage, put it, we say not, my Father, who art in heaven, nor give me this day my daily bread, nor does each one ask that only his own debt should be forgiven him, nor does he request for himself alone that he may not be led into temptation and delivered from evil. Our prayer is public and common. And when we pray, we pray not for one, but for the whole people, because we, the whole people, are one. If you are a Christian, prayer is not one small part of your life. Prayer isn't something you do just on occasion. Prayer is everything. Prayer is how you live your life before God. But prayer doesn't come naturally. We need help to learn how to pray. So did Jesus' followers. That's, that's why they asked him to teach them. And he did. And the first thing that he taught them was how to begin. Begin by focusing your attention. Not on the cares or distractions all around you, not, not on your own failures and successes, not on what you can contribute to a crisis, but focus your attention on God, the Heavenly Father, who loves you and cares for you just as He loves and cares for Jesus. And keep in mind that as you pray, you don't pray alone. You're praying with Jesus. You're praying with and for and on behalf of other Christians because you are addressing yourself to the one who isn't just your father or my father, but our father. Our father.